Hello, and welcome to a brand new episode of Outliers. I'm your host, Daniel Scrivener. On Outliers, every week I sit down with an incredible entrepreneur or investor to decode what they've mastered and uncover the insights, ideas, and models that we can all apply. And today I'm thrilled to share my conversation with Scott Belsky. Scott is absolutely prolific. He's currently the chief product officer at Adobe, as well as a venture partner at the world-renowned venture capital firm, Benchmark. He began his career at Goldman Sachs before leaving to found Behance, which he later sold to Adobe for $150 million. Scott is also the best-selling author of Making Ideas Happen and The Messy Middle, two of my all-time favorite books. And he's an investor in an incredible roster of companies, including Uber, Pinterest, Airtable, Carta, and Sweetgreen. And in this episode, we talk about the arc of Scott's career and the lessons he's learned along the way as an entrepreneur, investor, and best-selling author. We cover everything from how he worked with the founders of Sweetgreen to help design their latest compostable packaging, to why he views feedback as a form of compensation. This episode is packed with incredible quotes and ideas. As we were recording, I covered two whole pages with my own notes, so I know that you're in for a real treat. As always, visit outliers.fm to find the show notes and transcript for this episode, including links to everything that we discussed. And if you enjoy this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a short review on Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's jump into my conversation with the one and only Scott Belsky. Scott, it is a huge honor to have you on Outliers. So thank you so much for joining me today. No, thanks for having me. So I want to have a little bit of a different conversation with you. And, you know, as I have watched your work and I've kind of watched your trajectory evolve over the last 10 plus years, to me, you're a great example of a modern polymath, which I'm sure is like an awkward title to have put on you because you're an investor, an entrepreneur, you're an author. So I want to explore that. But what I thought would be great to start with is if you can just share for people listening that aren't aware of your kind of work and what you've done, if you could just share a quick high level sketch of your kind of trajectory from Goldman Sachs on. <laughs> I find that I am happiest when I feel fully utilized. And part of that for me is personal uh, with my family. And part of that is advising and helping other founders in their journeys, because I find that I'm deeply curious, and interested in some of the problems they're trying to solve and also how they build their teams. I also, by day, love operating and building products and teams myself. And I learned the hard way that when I unplug from that responsibility, I feel a little depressed. So some combination of these things, I guess, that has brought me to where I am. But after having an undergraduate experience with an interest in environmental economics and design and business, et cetera, I cut my teeth at uh, Goldman Sachs and realized very quickly I wasn't cut out for finance. And then ended up in another job there that I loved. And it was basically around organizational design. It was a small team in the executive office that focused on advising leaders in the firm that were having struggles with their businesses, going into clients and helping them deal with growth challenges. And I ended up realizing in that role that I loved building organizations or you know watching how organizations could be built. And I also realized that I loved using design to do it. I was actually one of the probably only people at Goldman Sachs with Adobe Illustrator installed on his computer because I just found it a very effective way of communicating as opposed to Excel spreadsheets and Word docs. Yeah, I can't imagine organizational structure in Excel. <laughs> it's terrible. I'm curious, talk a little bit about, it sounds like you in that role of kind of organizational design that you probably worked with a handful of different clients. Can you share a little bit about, you know, the types of clients you worked with? And I'm also just curious, it seems to me when I kind of look at your trajectory and look at it starting at Goldman Sachs, that that seems very formative. So I'm curious also just broadly what you took away, if anything, from the culture and team and environment at Goldman Sachs. Sure. And we're going way back because I left Goldman back in like 2005 or 2006. But what did I learn? Well, it was at the time a culture that really valued leadership development and was so intentional that the firm would actually give stretch assignments to high potential VPs and managing directors where they would be given a project somewhere else in the world, some role that was actually more so for their own development than for the firm's benefit. And yeah, it was a nice way of having some innovation potential that may or may not pan out to be a new business. But the conviction was that our development as leaders, you know, 70% of it happens through experiential education, 20% of it happens through coaching, and 10% happens in the classroom through formal instruction. And so it was a really great crash course into that 70% and how to be intentional about it, both for others as well as for my own career. 
And in terms of the types of problems that I was staffed on, I mean, it was all kinds of crazy stuff because I was the most junior guy in the team. So, you know, I was asked to develop the leadership decision-making compass that Hank Paulson, the CEO at the time, ran everyone in the firm through to being the writer of the script for the annual holiday partner video to going into some hedge funds that were wondering why their cultures were so bad and didn't want to engage any third-party consultant because of the confidentiality issues, but would come to Goldman as their prime broker and then would open up the organization to us. And I was like, wow, like no wonder this place is an S-show. There's no great leadership or thoughtfulness around a development here. So I just learned a ton. I love that framework that you shared of kind of 70% experiential, 20% being kind of coaching, 10% being learning, because it harks on something I think is deeply tragic, which is this idea that a lot of people have that you kind of go to school for four years or six years or eight years, and then you're set for life and you no longer need to learn and you no longer need to engage. You don't really need to improve. And I'm guessing you've taken that lens and you've likely worked with a handful of coaches along your career. Can you talk about the kind of experiential side of your development and any coaching that's been just crucial for you? I've always viewed feedback as a form of compensation. And when I don't get it, I ask for it. Probably not enough, but whenever I get it, it's gold to me. And even if I disagree with it, it's still reality because it's how someone sees me. As an entrepreneur or a product leader in a big company, you're always trying to develop and share a narrative and generate alignment with your teams. You know, you can plant a vision or an idea, but to get everyone aligned and to get everyone to feel like they're owners of it, And you really have to tune into everyone's frequencies, right? And the only way to do that is by getting data from others as to how you're coming across. So in fact, I would say that the biggest insecurity I have as a leader in a big company is the sort of emperor's new clothes fear. Is there something that I am doing or not doing that no one is telling me because of my position in the organization? How do we overcome that? I think it's a very active measure of asking for feedback repeatedly and developing a culture where people exchange that more liberally. Moving on to Behance, and I want to spend a little bit of time on this part of your story, but I'm curious, so you have this kind of four years and change experience at Goldman Sachs, and then you go on to found Behance. Was there an insight? Was there a trend that you saw? Was it just meeting the right people? What was the impetus to kind of founding Behance? Well, there are a couple of quick things that I would note. Number one, was a lot of the people that I found most interesting in my life and my close friends were creatives. And they always seemed like their careers were at the mercy of circumstance. Many of them were hired by headhunters to work for agencies, to work for brands. Many of them had outdated portfolio sites. Many of them never got attribution for the work that they actually did in the world. And you would have to know that they did that billboard to know that they had a role in it. And it just felt like, wow, like some of the people with the most potential and most talent in the world the people literally make our lives interesting, who compel us to take action on anything around us and understand the world as it's happening, are also the most disorganized community on the planet. At an existential level, Behance's mission was to organize the creative world. And of course, when I told people that, they were like, oh, you know, good luck with that. But in a practical level, an insight that really made Behance work was that up to that point, portfolio sites were websites on people's domain names out in the ether. And the only people that would discover them were the people who knew those people or got their business cards at the time. And how about like discovery of talent you didn't know existed, which is obviously the bigger opportunity. And so what Behance did is it deconstructed the nature of a portfolio into a series of projects, each project with an incredible presentation of the content in itself. So it could live on its own with metadata and ability to find. And if you found an incredible piece of work because you were searching for people who did work for Nike or whatever, and then you clicked on the person's name and landed in the portfolio, it was sort of inverting the funnel of how creative talent was discovered. And that ended up being a 10x better way for creatives to build their careers. And whenever in technology you crack a way of 10xing something that is indispensable in an industry, to me, that's where you can build a real company. I wholeheartedly agree. And later on, I'm going to share a little bit of, you know, kind of my connection with Behance and, and I'll share thanks to you because Behance in a lot of ways helped kicked off my career. But I'm curious, you know, so you start off on this trajectory. I agree. The problem sounds really big, but, you know, it's not necessarily linear. And I know that you went through your own kind of valley of despair, messy middle, building it. Talk a little bit about that part of the process. You set off on this exciting journey and you kind of find yourself in the middle period of it. And any lessons learned, any advice you would give to other entrepreneurs struggling with that? Sure. Well, the beginning of a journey is always extraordinarily exciting. 
You can get people to quit their jobs. You can quit your job yourself with this notion of what the world might look like in the future and how you're going to make it so. And then, of course, reality kicks in and you realize that it's just endless ups and downs. It's just tremendous amounts of volatility. Sometimes you feel like you're onto something and then you're humbled by the fact that the guy selling fruit at the corner it has more revenue than you do. And who do you think you are being a business? It's very disconcerting at times. You're working amidst anonymity, ambiguity, uncertainty. And so there were some lost years of Behance. I mean, we were, as you may know, we were bootstrapped for five years, venture-backed for two years. There were at least a couple of years in there where we were just kind of going sideways. I call them the lost years of Behance. And there were reasons for that that were largely my fault. But keeping the team together long enough to figure it out, building a culture, merchandising the progress to the team, even when there wasn't much to celebrate yet. You know, these were all crucial ways of just sticking together. That last year period, that strikes a note with me because I've invested in a lot of companies, I've kind of observed a lot of entrepreneurs. And it seems to me like, you know, there's kind of these tick and talk cycles of building a company where an entrepreneur is able to contribute at a level, then the business maybe grows beyond their ability to contribute and have an influence. And the entrepreneur has to catch up and work on themselves and up-level their skills. And it seems like in a lot of ways, that kind of entrepreneur or that leadership team can be a gating factor on progress. And I'm curious, in those lost years, Part of that is obviously keeping the team motivated, but a bigger piece of that is just keeping yourself motivated and balancing out your emotions and kind of keeping a positive outlook. What was your tactics? What was your approach to being able to do that? I've always gone between whether a startup should be more of a sports team mentality or a family mentality. You know, a sports team, everyone has to be at their best or you're cut. You have to pass the ball. You know, everyone has to be a participant. Whereas family, you put up with that drunk uncle every year, even though you know he's part of your family. So everyone sort of has a little level of tolerance for each other. And in our instance, the family aspects of Behance kept us together because there were certainly periods where none of us were qualified to do the work we were doing. And in some way, we made this commitment in one another to build each other into the roles we needed to be. And in some cases, step aside and hire people more talented than us in certain functions. So I think that was a key part of it. But practically speaking, there were a lot of tactics we had. I mean, I think one of the most important things as I look back was the ability to kind of short circuit our own reward system as a team to keep ourselves engaged when there wasn't a stream of traditional rewards like salary or members or big press releases, etc. And we had all kinds of fun things. You know, we would make bets with each other of things that when they would happen and the winner would have to do something bad or get something good. You know, we had all kinds of fun games that we would employ at the time. And I also, as I look back, I think there were a lot of moments where I kind of retold the story of what we're doing and the progress we're making and where we're going. And the analogy I've come to use is it's sort of like driving your team on a cross-country trip with the windows blacked out and everyone in the back seat not knowing where they are or whether they're making any progress unless you merchandise it to them. And that was another critical thing I did often. I'm curious, you know, when you put on your kind of investor hat and you're working with one of the companies you've invested in, or maybe it's just an entrepreneur you're advising or coaching, and they're in that messy middle period themselves, because I think this is something that a lot of people, I think it's just frankly not covered, not talked about, but this happens at almost every startup company continually, like for multiple times in its trajectory where there is this messy middle period where they've had a big breakout. Now they're trying to figure out kind of where to go from there. So when you have an entrepreneur you're working with that's in a period like that, what's your advice to them, you know, what do you think is helpful in that role? The questions I get, you know, range. Sometimes it's the question of, should I quit this or should I stick with it? Because it gets hard. And you're always asking yourself whether you admit it or not. Like, is this going to work? And should I quit? And I think that this old adage of winners never quit is not necessarily true. As we know from pivots and from stories of other entrepreneurs that the best thing they ever did was quit something. What I oftentimes ask them is to remember the level of conviction they had in the beginning. You know, when you started and you saw the world in a certain way, you had a lot of conviction, even though you didn't really know much yet. You hadn't talked to customers, you hadn't developed product, you hadn't done betas and whatever else. And then now, after all you have learned, things that have worked and not worked, or more importantly, like what you've observed, do you have more or less conviction in that end state? And a lot of entrepreneurs who are still in their messy middle will say, oh my gosh, like, this has to exist. Like, this is a problem. Like, I'm sure of it. And to those entrepreneurs, I tell them, 
This is par for the course. You're in the messy middle. Stick with it. This is what it's about. Gain confidence from the doubt you're getting from others and consider yourself lucky that it's so hard to get this right because it will be a moat when you're in market. But sometimes an entrepreneur says, honestly, I have less conviction. And I say, well, then quit. Do something different. Life is short. Do something where you've got more conviction and you're ready to go. But I love that advice. I've actually never heard it framed that way. But yeah, kind of traveling back in time, remembering that conviction you started with and updating that in real time. So then you end up selling Behance to Adobe and joining Adobe for a period of time. I'd love to talk a little bit about what that kind of experience and transition was like for you. Obviously, you're going from being an entrepreneur of a smaller business to joining a behemoth in a lot of ways. And your role changed a lot. And I know it was partly involved around the kind of creative suite So what was that transition like? And I don't know, what'd you take away from that experience? Well, it was certainly a moment where I wasn't sure how I would adjust, right? I'd always been completely in control of my own destiny. Part of the success of a startup is like cultivating a well-oiled immune system where you can tell if anything is off. And there's a lot of like control associated with something new like that, as opposed to a big company where you have thousands of people around you and there's no way everyone can be aligned at all times. In fact, some percentage of the company is always misaligned. That's just the way it is. It's just not possible to get everyone on the same page in the same moment. That took adjustment. But what I was excited about was, first of all, the reach. This idea, as a startup, you wish people were in the top of your funnel and knew who you were. And as a big company, it's like you've got everyone there and they know who you are. And it's kind of yours to win or lose. I also really enjoyed fighting the bureaucracy to some extent, the things that were inefficient. I felt like I could be an entrepreneur in an entirely new way by innovating around something in the organization. And I think that those folks are very precious in a big company because they're the future. They're the future of the better norms, the better practices, the better way of doing things. And if you don't have those people, you all regress to the mean and ultimately end up simply resting on your legacy. And Adobe, when we transitioned to a subscription offering, but still had the same old desktop products. We were at risk of doing that unless we innovated with things like cloud documents and mobile creativity tools that were connected to the desktop ones and integrated fonts and services, et cetera, et cetera. We had to like level up. Otherwise, our transition was not legitimate. And I think it took us years to get that done. But as an experience of being a leader, it just I learned so much more than I anticipated. I know now you're the chief product officer, so obviously you're spending a lot of time on the product side. Was that true when you're first in Adobe? No. So I entered initially only overseeing Behance, which was the asset that Adobe purchased in late 2012. And then about a year or so later, the the leader I reported to at the time said, listen, we have this nascent thing called mobile and we haven't figured it out yet. Do you want to take it on? I was like, big point where I kind of choose to just move beyond the thing that I had made. And I was really excited about it. Because it also opened up a Pandora's box of questions around, well, you know, if you have a mobile product, how does it connect to the desktop product? And then you need services. And what are those services? And I ended up realizing there was a lot more to it. It was a great experience. And I think also it helped retain my team and I, because we started to have steep learning curves again, which was really important. It's the importance of steep learning curves, especially if you've been working on a problem for a long period of time. I'd love to switch tacks and talk a little bit about investing. And, you know, as you've made, you've been prolific as an investor, both as an angel, as well as by being a part of Benchmark and your portfolio, you know, you've got some incredible companies, whether it's Uber or Sweetgreen or Flexport. And one of the things that I was curious about that is obviously for anyone that's an entrepreneur, I think part of that naturally becomes you want to pay people supported you in your journey. You want to pay that back for other entrepreneurs. And maybe that played a role in why you started making investments. Was there anything else to that story? You know, what was it that just kind of fascinated you and drew you in? It first happened a little less altruistically and a little bit more around wanting to buy an education, frankly. You know, it was 2010. I was five years or four years into Behance. I probably had no business really investing at the time. And I was introduced to this guy who had just left his job at Google to start a company that was also focusing on the creative world to some extent and had like a very grid-like pattern to its product experience, which was similar to Behance at the time. And he had another name for his company at the time, but it became Pinterest. And this is Ben Silberman. And so I had this meeting with him before he was raising his first sort of seed round and really resonated with him and his vision. At the time, there were products like Delicious and others that were bookmarking products. And he really had this vision for a visual interest and showcase and discovery site. And I actually felt like I could learn a lot from him. He was from the West Coast. I was from New York. And of course, I had this 
insecurity being outside of Silicon Valley and not having a network out there. And so in some weird way, I said, well, listen, I'm going to be an advisor for his business. And I'm also going to invest and in some ways buy an education and a network out West was maybe my rationalization at the time. And I ended up having a great experience learning from him in the early days and trying to help however I could. And then, of course, when you have an investment that yields a very large team of people who end up going out and starting their own companies, they go back to the same angels that were helpful in their previous company. And so what I've learned in the investing space is really to stick to my lanes. Like I'm a product and design obsessive. I love jumping in and helping teams with their product experience, their onboarding, their first mile experience, the engagement patterns and building and, you know, and scaling a design and product team. And I feel like companies that I really love and founders I resonate with, I would love to serve that role. So obviously with Pinterest, it sounded like you ended up investing very early in the stage of that company. And that company's obviously gone to grow immensely. It's now a public company. It's done really well as a public company. And you know, it's not the only example in your portfolio. I know Uber is another example you invested super early. So for someone listening that maybe hasn't had your purview of being able to invest early and truly seeing just how much time it takes to build a sizable business and bring this vision to life, can you share a little bit about what that's like to kind of get a early glimpse at something where you're just as excited as the founder of what this could become and then see the ups and downs all along the way to that kind of getting realized? Well, a couple things. First, great opportunities never have great opportunity in the subject line. None of these were obvious. And in fact, after these investments, I and other investors in these companies, I can factually tell you, thought they would be zeros in both Pinterest and Uber at certain points. It's just because of the ups and downs of the economy and also the spaces that they were in and their lack of ability to monetize and periods of low growth and competition, et cetera, et cetera, like regulatory issues with Uber, for example. There were many moments where it was very unclear. You can't become lazy and look for obvious signals. And that's when when, when investors tell me, oh, I saw a really great signal. I'm like, I don't resonate with that because it's never clear for me. What I do zero into, though, is really a product that I think is 10x better experience in something that I do and identify with or can get empathy with, you know, some other set of customers doing. You talk to a founder and every conversation is a step function more interesting than the one before it. It's a signal to you of the type of person that they are. I also love investing in optimistic pragmatists, people who are very optimistic about the future, like anything's possible, but also somewhat practical and pragmatic about the present. Oh, no, we're not moving fast enough. Or this data set, I'm not sure we're able going to sufficiently build that. And I don't think our AI effort will be as effective as we may have thought. That's a very rewarding type of partner to work with, right? And so as a board member, as an employee, like those are the people you want to work for. I love that quote, investing in people that are optimistic pragmatists, because I think that that's kind of the sweet spot to get into where obviously someone can see something that's not yet here and be able to build it out, but is also extremely practical along the way. And I'm curious from those experiences, have you drawn any parallels? Like what helps somebody? Because I know a lot of people who are very optimistic. I know a lot of people who are very practical. And I don't know of many people that are able to knit those two together. What is the superpower there? Or what is the ability there to kind of knit those two things together? There's a talent to sort of see how an end state will be. And to have inherent optimism about what could go right is a special skill. And in fact, I think it's one of those that makes you a great founder and maybe not a good investor. The best full-time investors, traditional investors that I know are really good at picking apart what will go wrong always. As a founder, you're never going to get past go if that's your mentality. But at the same time, with the optimism and the desire to market it and spin a narrative and get people excited, etc., you have to have this bias towards action. Nothing's ever getting done fast enough. The world is always moving faster than you. Competition's always at your back if you're doing something important. And so Facing those realities and also never putting lipstick on a pig type of thing. When something goes wrong, you always have an option. Either make this look better than it is to your team and your board and blunt the blow of the bad news or be very forthright and say, this is exactly what we're up against and I need help. And everyone is in that instance at some point, but it depends whether they're honest about it or not. And so I just think that that's the killer combo. 
so you talked about the lens staying in your lane in the lenses that you use of kind of being product focused and design focused. And one thing I wanted to explore with you is the kind of lens you apply when you're looking at a company that you think has incredible design. And that could be you think they have an incredible design culture. Maybe that kind of resembles something like Airbnb. That could mean that just the product in and of itself you think is incredibly well designed. And what I'm curious to understand a little bit is I think a lot of designers don't actually know what's valuable and what's not valuable in terms of bringing design and building design as a competitive advantage at a company. And I think a lot of people get confused with that a rebranding is adding a tremendous amount of value, you know, and it's not. So I'm curious, when you're looking at a company specifically through that lens of design, what to you is kind of design that's not moving the needle? And what to you is design that's truly moving the needle for a business? I'll talk about it from a product perspective and also from a operating strategy perspective. From a product perspective, I very much look at a product and I think about its object model and the level of thoughtfulness that someone put into helping any user of that product know exactly where they are, what they're supposed to do, and what they're supposed to do next at all times. And underneath that, there are a lot of implications, whether it's the breadcrumbs of understanding how you got to where you are in the product always knowing where home is, you know, getting that safety, not getting lost, some redundancies in the product to catch people where they might look based on familiar patterns they have with other products. There's so many things under the hood that are required to achieve a great object model. And I think that in order to do that, you have to have a great design and product sensibility as a team. And I also believe that that's a really big competitive advantage in in many industries, especially those that you're trying to disrupt that have like inefficient, poor product experiences. And so I really try to tune into that. And that's why when a deck doesn't have a product to walk through, I just can't resonate with it. And similarly, when I meet with my teams at Adobe, I always push for product first because we need to ground ourselves in like where we are and what the user's experience is. Another thing I've been trying to push for at Adobe is recognizing that our customers are not just living in a product like Photoshop. They have an end-to-end experience across our products. And so how do we really take that into account as opposed to just think about a customer from a product-by-product product perspective. From an organization level, though, real quickly and real short, a prototype is worth 100 meetings. You can have a meeting and heads nod and talk about what something should be. But when you walk people through an end-to-end experience for an objective that you have to change something at the business, it's like a hot knife through the butter of bureaucracy. Everyone suddenly gets aligned, and it's a beautiful thing. There are a lot less different interpretations when you're all going through the product together as opposed to just some sort of a narrative or some sort of a nice deck. And I love your model of kind of object or orientation as you kind of think about product. And one thing I was curious is, you know, just looking at some of your investments, clearly you can bring that lens to something like Airtable or Uber, but you also have investments like Sweetgreen in your portfolio. And I'm curious, you know, when you have something that's maybe more in the real world, slightly out of the realm of digital and out of product, do you still approach it very very similarly do you use that object model or is there another model or another kind of screen altogether? Yeah, well, Sweetgreen is a great example. It's a company that I sat on the board on as well and helped with their digital experience. But what I loved about that team is that they really think about the end-to-end experience of their customer. And the challenge to me was that they think about it both in the physical and in the digital world as one seamless experience. So I felt like I had a lot to learn from them. They also think about the ex- and an experience, including the quality of the product itself, which has implications behind the counter as well as in front of the counter. I remember spending a whole day with those guys and an incredible industrial designer I knew going through new salad bowl concepts. How could a salad bowl be both recyclable, eliminate the need for washing metal bowls in between salads and improve operations and efficiency and cleanliness. It felt like it would be entirely different, but actually it's the same sort of thing. I mean, digital, I think that we as humans really discern too much between atoms and bits, right? At the end of the day, it's all something that's happening in our brains through light projected into our eyes. And whether it's coming from natural light or artificial light, it's all an experience that we're encountering. It's a very meta perspective. I love that example of spending a whole day looking at salad bowls because all of the design-focused companies that I've worked at that have moved the needle, including Apple and Square, did things like that. I remember when I was at Apple, we took a tour of the industrial design lab there and they had this whole area. I mean, it was an insane amount of real estate that was dedicated to all these different prototypes of the lighting mechanism that would be behind the Apple logo on stores. And they were trying to find the right hue of, is this too yellow? Is this too white? Is this not bright enough? Is this bright enough? And then I remember at Square, at that same level, 
level of attention to detail, we would look at 10, 15 different industrial prototypes of different square readers with, you know, different affordances, different sizes, different form factors. I think anytime you're with a team that spends that level of detail on something like that, I think it just really care, you know, that resonates. I think it's a great point. And I've always churned over what the actual definition of design is, which just seems like a very cliche question. But you know, my latest view is that it's the small things that make a big difference. You have to have a group of people that care about those little things that ultimately make people feel something they can't even describe, right? And it is those little things that make a big difference. I love that too, because it also seems very uniting between, I think a lot of people are kind of like, oh, well, here's product and here's design. And it's like, no, they're all, it's, it's all the same thing. And if you care about those little details that move the needle, you're going to apply, I think, that same lens to the product, which is super interesting. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about Benchmark, because I think obviously, you know, as an investor, as someone who's interested in the investing space, Benchmark is an incredibly iconic firm, I think, for a lot of people. And so I'm curious what brought you to Benchmark. And if you could just talk a little bit about the kind of culture and values and what it's like to actually be on that team? You know, I'd been at Adobe for three years. I'd been at Behance for seven years before that. So I was 10 years into my role building products in the creative industry, had circumstantially been involved with a number of companies as an investor. And, you know, it made a mistake, which was to think that everyone telling me I should do something means I should do it. I was being told by my friends that, oh, you should be an investor. That should be your next thing. And of course, grass is always greener. Like at the time, operating, leading teams, products, product launches, big meetings. I mean, the idea of doing something different was, was appealing. And so I took the leap. I had a tremendous amount of respect for brand benchmark and the partners and their track record, et cetera. And I figured, you know, what better place to jump in and commit the rest or the next jet part of my career, at least, to being a full-time investor in venture capital. And so I hung up my spurs and I quickly learned that the things that I loved doing most, like thinking about the potential of a product, the potential of a team before it's obvious that there's traction and really also spending a ton of time that may not be an economical use of time in a world where it's, you know, you have to see a lot of volume of teams and really travel the world constantly. I missed that. And so I saw it, my partner saw it. I tried to make it work. That notion of you can't quit, you got to make it work, you know, certainly crept in. But it just became like so clear to me, like this was not going to be like a great outcome for me in my career. I didn't want to look back 10 years from now and feel like I quit operating so quickly. And so the firm was extraordinarily gracious and like sort of saying to me, well, then what role would you want? And I remember building like a little quip document of the role that I, I had in mind and my partners were super supportive and remain connected to the firm, remain an LP, et cetera. And now I'm really happy that I had to kind of have a hybrid of both building and investing. I feel like to the point of feeling fully utilized and thus happy, like that's what works for me. Hey, I'm curious. I want to ask two closing questions to kind of close out this kind of investing part of the conversation. And one of those is, you know, you talked about obviously what got you into investing in the first place was wanting to get an education. So now we're fast forwarding to today. How has that played out? And in my end, the reason I want to ask this question is there are a lot of people who are investors who have been an operator. There are a lot of operators who have also been an investor at some point in time. I think it's becoming more common in smaller angels, but there aren't too many people that are able to knit those together really well. And I see those as very reciprocal, where you learn a lot as an investor, kind of referred to it as being a scientist, and you have all these experiments running in parallel, and you're able to observe differences in what's happening in each of those and and learn and apply those. What's your view and how has that kind of education impacted how you operate? I find it extremely valuable for me to see how the next generation of teams are making their products. You know, what design tools are they using? What collaboration tools are they using? What are their work practices? What are their work from home philosophies? And how are they dealing with the pandemic? I observe all this, you know, in little pockets of time during the week or oftentimes the weekend. And then in my day job as a big company, you know, we're tackling many of the same issues. And this actually kind of gave me the cardinal rule that oftentimes when you're trying to solve a company, rather, oftentimes you're trying to solve a problem in a big company, the answer is like, what would a small company do? So I ask that all the time and I get a front row seat in this sort of investor advisory role. So it really works for me. I'm all, of course, I'm ruthless about my time and my priorities, etc. It's kept me on my toes. It's taught me more than I can explain. And it's extraordinarily rewarding. At this point, it also is giving back. I mean, I, you know, there are many investments that I do where it's like, listen, I am doing this because I love the entrepreneur and I love the problem. And I don't even have much financial exposure to it, but I just think it's such a great journey to be a part of. 
I want to ask one more question. The answer may be very similar, but one thing that I was really curious to ask you is, I think when a lot of people think of an investor, they think obviously the main motivation is financial. And sure, obviously you hope when you make investments that these turn out to be valuable and during companies in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of investors care more about the outcome for the company overall than their own personal outcome. But clearly there's that element. But I imagine that for you, it's much deeper and much more kind of emotionally resonant of why investing is so interesting. It sounds like part of that's backing entrepreneurs. But if we kind of put the money part aside, put the learning part aside, what's at the heart? What warms your heart when you're looking at a pitch or when you're backing an entrepreneur that makes it a deeply rewarding emotional experience for you? It's so exciting to feel like you have a chance to be a part of some part of the future, something very material and impactful. I don't know if the driver is ego or the novelty of being alongside that journey and seeing the inner workings of a problem being solved. It's probably a combination of all these things, as well as the friendships, right, that you make along the way. And yes, the ability to look back in your life and say, wow, like I had a small little microscopic role. Maybe I introduced to the key person who built the design for them or whatever the case may be. But that is extraordinarily rewarding. I've learned it's actually part of what motivates me in my career. And when one of those investments works, to me, it's like, how do I put that capital back into the system and really be very long-term oriented about it? So I'd love to transition and switch the conversation to talk a little bit about your books and how you approach writing. And for people that haven't read them, you've got two incredible books. I've read both of them. You know, They're near and dear to my heart in different ways. And funny enough, I read them at different points in time where they were super resonant for me. The messy middle I read cover maybe a year and a half ago when I was in my own messy middle. And that was literal. I could not find really anything that I felt like could help me get through that experience kind of emotionally because it is it can be very challenging. And that book was it. I'm curious if you could start by just sharing a little bit of the backstory and the kind of core idea in each of those books. Absolutely. And I'll start by just saying that the reason I write is because it's also my way of remembering the things that I'm learning from others and synthesizing it. I've always felt like writing is, for me at least, the most effective form of self-discovery. And it also helps connect the dots with your community because whenever you share something, people then have more to talk to you about. With Making Ideas Happen, this was back in writing started in 2008 or 2007. It was the early days of Behance. And as we were trying to organize the creative world, I focused on who are the most productive creative individuals and teams out there? And why are they especially productive? Also, I was frustrated with the fact that everyone talks about inspiration and creativity in this creative world. It's the last thing everyone needs. Like they've got enough creativity and ideas. In fact, that's the problem. Like you have too many ideas and people jump from idea to idea to idea and never get anything done. So I felt a real call to action to focus on productivity in the creative world and what we could learn from the most productive creative teams and individuals in the world. And so that's what making ideas happen is all about. And really the book is brought down into insights around organization, insights around the leveraging community forces to hold yourself accountable and refine, et cetera. And then also leading creative teams, which is a whole different ballgame as those who have. Then after that, I said, I'm never writing another book again. Like that was a pain in the ass. And it was just a very like arduous and emotional process to get that thing done. And so years passed, but I was oftentimes in a board meeting or after a 2 a.m. phone call with an entrepreneur struggling with something or in my experience integrating Behance into Adobe and building products at Adobe later on, I kept writing things down. You know, I kept writing. I had an insights file. I called them essential insights. And they were like things that I wanted to remember. And at the time I was using Evernote, now Notion, but I was like writing all these down. And I had at one point like 860 something insights. And I figured I should probably organize these so I can have some way of referencing them. And so I organized them largely into three camps. One was around enduring the tough parts, like how do you endure and what are the tactics and stories around endurance in the lows? The second was around optimizing, and it was sort of a cheat because there's a lot. It was optimizing how you work, optimizing how your team works, and optimizing how your product works, which is, of course, are entirely different disciplines of thought, but I figured I'd lump them all together. And then the third was kind of around the final mile. How do people not get tripped up over their own legacy? How does someone not become a one-hit wonder? How do you not sabotage yourself in the final mile of launching a product or a project or starting your next chapter of your career? There was a lot around that as well. And so After all that, I challenged myself to synthesize this into a book. And I felt like the best way of summing it up is it's really the volatility. It's how to manage the volatility in the middle. Do you have another book coming or are you for sure no more books now? (laughs) Well, of course, the answer right now is hell no. So yeah, not at the moment. 
I'm curious. Those books have meant a lot to me. I know that it's very rarely happened that I've mentioned them to someone they haven't already heard about it or they don't have it or they, they haven't already read it. What, as an author, obviously there's kind of this selfish or at least scratching your own itch piece to, you know, like you said, just organizing things and then being able to share it with others. What's some of the most rewarding feedback that you've gotten from each of those books and people that have read them and stories that have come out of those? Well, this is the best part. You know, you've been publishing as well and, you know, and getting your thoughts out there. And so I'm sure you know what it feels like. You get an email from someone who's either listened or you read something you've done. And then they like track it back to like a moment where they were struggling. There's no ask in these emails. It's just like, I just wanted to thank you. And those mean the world to me. And whenever those come in, obviously it never gets old. It truly feels like you're doing something that matters in the world. I don't know what else to say. It's a great feeling. I guess coming into this, my thought was you potentially have some sort of a writing practice, but maybe that's not the case. And it sounds like maybe that writing practice is jotting down observations and then at some point kind of doing this mass collation and distillation of that. Is that an accurate way to kind of represent it? Or can you talk about for you how you go from having this constellation of insights into kind of boiling that down into a body of work? I think you articulated it really well. And it's only at the final six months of a project where I start to apply incredible rigidity and discipline around writing time and whatever else. Before that, it's always a natural tending of ideas and we'll add more and more to, and then six months passes and I'll add a little bit more and then two years passes. So with the messy middle, I was bringing up stuff that I'd written over the seven years prior. It was very much a long drawn out process in that regard. I would love to spend a little bit of time on the piece of that that stood out to me, which is, you know, you talked about you have this collection of insights on the final mile. And part of that is not getting hung up on your legacy. And part of that is not being a one hit wonder. That's a fascinating kind of series of kind of questions and points there that I think, you know, a lot of people struggle with. And I think maybe one way to sum that up is I've often wondered, and I'm sure you've wondered this as well, too. And it'll actually often happen for me with music, where just yesterday there was a song on at this restaurant I was at, and it just reminded me that that's probably that's the only song from that artist I've ever heard, yet it's literally one of the most popular songs through all of time. And then nothing else ever kind of gets released or makes its way out into the world after that. So I'm curious, you know, what are some of those insights that just resonated with you or were aha moments around the final mile? I talked to a lot of folks about this in different disciplines, including people in the arts and music, etc. And a couple of thoughts came out of came out of those conversations. Number one is oftentimes the cost of getting attention is that you're no longer paying attention. And so sometimes if you imagine anyone can identify with this, when you post a new piece of content on Instagram or Twitter, and then suddenly you find yourself really tuned into the traction it's getting and what people are saying about it and commenting against what you said and whatever. And so your attention gets consumed suddenly as a result of your creation. And so you're unlikely to create in that zone because all you're doing is you're tuning into what people are saying about your creation. Imagine that at a thousand million times where all people want to do is hear that song again and talk about that song. And you could go for 10 years and never get through your own fan mail. And so if you're really seduced by your attention that you're getting, you will not create anymore. And so you wonder how these incredibly brilliant creative people only did one thing and never again. Maybe it's because they felt in some ways victim to that. And maybe that's also why some of the great creatives are introverts, you know, and why they actually don't enjoy that fanfare and they tune it out. I think so a a few tactics here. I mean, number one is to always revert to your curiosity. The power and gravity of your curiosity must outweigh the gravity of the attention you're getting for your work. I think number two is the idea of killing your creations once they're done. That era of my work is now dead to me. And now I'm focused on this. And that's an important thing to do. I remember there was a presentation at one of our 99U conferences, the Behance conference we used to hold every year, where a speaker talked about the idea of for a creative person, are they their work or not? Are you your work? Am I my work? And some part of me says yes, because I'm passionate about my work. I care about my work. I'm not just shoveling snow, although that might be someone's passion. But, you know, it's not mine. I have found I'm fortunate. I get to do something I feel really passionate about. But that's also dangerous because once you are your work, your identity is tied up in what you're making, then what does that mean once what you're making is done out there, over, uninteresting? And, you know, does that mean that your identity is over? I think there's something to be said about keeping them separate. 
It reminds me of a quote I heard recently, which was kind of talking about what allows people to endure at a certain level over a period of time. And one of the observations, which for me, I was like, wow, it's an incredible insight I'd never thought about was that at a certain point of time, once you've been successful enough, it's as much about forgetting things that you've quote unquote learned so you can learn new things and so you can shed some of that old skin so you can truly, I think, be present, be curious again and have new discoveries. And that for me was one of those like, oh, that's just such a great insight in just a few words. Yeah, Daniel, just to like elaborate on that, I actually, you just reminded me, there's a mentor of mine in Boston who was a really successful businessman who I always kind of looked up to growing up. I'm older than I. And I remember talking to him when I was in business school and him telling me that he doesn't save anything. He doesn't save mementos. And it was such the opposite of me. Like I always saved, you know, the acceptance letter to college and everything was like significant to me. And I would meticulously save this stuff. And I couldn't believe that this person with such a great history like didn't save anything as almost like a pride point. And only later have I realized that those things that we save from our past in some ways are also anchors to our past. And in some weird way, maybe they are us celebrating the wins from before as opposed to focusing forward. I would love to close it out to talk a little bit about the future, because part of that, obviously, I think if you're an investor, if you're building on that frontier, there's a part of your brain that's just naturally wired to think and be curious about where things are heading. And you have what I imagine to be just a pretty incredible seat to that from the investments that you're in, from the deals you're looking at, from your position at Adobe. So I'm curious what sorts of books and ideas recently have been on your mind and have been shaping how you think about the future or how you kind of think about what's happening now, maybe a little bit more clearly. I'll share a few things that I've sort of trends, I guess, that I've become really interested in. One I uh, wrote about right in the new year that I call edupployment. And it's the idea of the vertical integration of education and employment. The idea that a company can train up tons of people to do appliance repair and then get certificates in every type of appliance. And then once they're certified, deploy them towards people in their region that need an appliance repaired and have a vertically integrated marketplace and almost like secondary education. And you're seeing this, that's a company called Nana. There's a company called Main Street that's doing this for house painting. And there are a number of other examples. And I just think that for the future of income inequality and marketplaces that allow individuals to be their own business, like is this a part of that solution is something that's going to be very big in the coming years. I also obviously think a lot about the creator economy and how you know, creators are owning their own audience and what that means in terms of traditional media. So that's obviously a trend that a lot of folks talk about. And I guess the last one maybe that's really top of mind right now is the consensus economy. You know, the idea that, I mean, whether it's Bitcoin or baseball cards or anything else, the hyper-networked nature of all of us right now means that if some small long-tail group of people, you know, if they agree mutually on the value of something random and you can fractionalize that and trade it, et cetera, you can, in theory, have like a long tail of currencies and micro communities. And I think that's very profound for the future. Just on that last point, I mean, one of the conversations I just had, I think, last week or the week before was with someone who's building out a business in kind of the collectible space. And they're literally finding insane stuff, whether it's a meteorite or a triceratops skull, this physical object kind of creating shares of it and then allowing people to buy shares of that and have a portfolio. And they're also doing other stuff. I mean, you know, and they're part of the trend in my mind that we're seeing, whether it's NBA Top Shot, NFTs, this is going to be a shot in the dark because I'm not sure how much you've thought about this. But it's... It's been on my mind a lot. In my mind, all of these things fit together, whether it's real world collectibles, digital collectibles, NFT. And part of that, I think, is I'm less interested in the value question of like, why are people paying so much? And I'm more interested in what is it culturally or generationally that we're going through that's making that, you know, just means that the latest generations are much more anchored in digital and that's more real to them than physical. And that's, of course, why all this makes sense. It's super shot in the dark. Do you have any thoughts, observations there? I truly agree with the way you, you see it. I mean, obviously, we're all digitally native. I think in some ways, we were all waiting for something to collect digitally because collecting is sort of a human nature. It's things that are profound to you. Why are things important to us? Because they're either scarce, because they have history, they have provenance until the advent of blockchain and some of the tools around transparency and provenance, it was really not possible to have that sensation in the digital world. But also a lot of us, and especially the next generation, they're living their lives in these digital worlds. Literally, they're living in virtual worlds where they want to look a certain way. I mean, look at Fortnite and billions of revenue, all associated with people's skins and weapons and shoes and whatever they look like in the game. So a digital identity is a huge business and is a big opportunity these days. 
And I'm guessing you would agree too, this isn't a fad. This isn't a temporal thing. It is a shift that has a tremendous amount of momentum. Is digital things acquiring more value? Absolutely. Now, of course, will there be ebbs and flows? Of course, right? There will be volatility. (laughs) There's a messy middle for trends like these as well. I'm going to ask a different closing question than I typically ask. And you can answer this as an investor, talk about one of the companies that you backed that didn't work out, but you thought was an incredible team, was an incredible company to be a part of, or it could also be a personal thing. But the question I wanted to ask you is if you have a favorite failure, and that could be an investment, that could be something personal, ideally, obviously something that you took something away from, but obviously where the value of that thing didn't really materialize, but you ended up being a very rewarding experience regardless. Well, there are many. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not surprised. (laughs) There are products that I had to kill at Behance that probably wasted months, if not years of my team's efforts that taught me how to be a better product leader. And there were also career mistakes. I mean, certainly thinking I'd be a a traditional VC led me down the path that was wrong for me. And it was really very tough to extricate myself from that to some degree. I think I would probably go back to early lessons learned building a team at Behance. I think that one of the things I've always struggled with was always the desire to hedge the risks that I was taking. Like getting too diversified or bolting on other products and features and yeah. In some ways, all the above. And I think that there is a debate about whether entrepreneurs, really good entrepreneurs are either major risk takers like the Elon Musk of the world and the stories we hear about all in on everything versus folks that are very hedged always. I think I was probably too far though on that spectrum where when we were building a network for the creative professional world, we were also building a task management tool and we also had a paper products line and we also had a conference. And if you ask me why back then, the reason was is that we weren't venture backed. We had to pay the bills. And also I felt responsible to make sure this business worked. And I wasn't willing to like go all in on something. And actually it took my team really pushing me to say, hey, listen, like we're splitting our efforts here. And if we really wanna make a dent in a world somewhere, we gotta pick our thing. And as soon as I made those difficult decisions, we really unleashed our potential. That was the beginning of the best days of Behance. It took some whiffs, you know, to really get that right. Not to push back on that, but I will say the action method stuff, I still use it. I still order it. I think it's awesome. So I'm glad you ended up doing that. Me too. Right here, you know. (laughs) There we go. And I wanted to end this by just saying thank you. You know, and when I reached out to you initially, I shared the story, but I want to share it with the audience as well. You talked about the impetus for founding Behance was creating a network and that companies couldn't find people's work. And, you know, they would have to find you through some weird methods. And that ultimately meant that obviously it wasn't very democratic. It wasn't an equal playing field for all talent. And I started out my career surprisingly enough, dropping out of high school to pursue design full-time. And I was one of those people who had a website with all of my work up on it. And when Behance launched, I immediately joined. I put my work up on it and one of my projects ended up getting featured. And that literally was the impetus for me to get a call from Apple, to then move to San Francisco, to then go to Square. And literally, I'm sure I hopefully would have been just fine in an alternate universe, but Behance had a remarkable impact on my career. And I just want to say thank you so much. Thanks for sharing that. It's like, this is the stuff that makes it so rewarding for our team. And obviously it's the work itself that ultimately yields the opportunity, but it's been really fun to build this platform and get inspired and humbled by the community every day. That's for sure. And thanks for having me on this. And I just love the podcast series you've created. So it's an honor. Thank you so much, Scott. I think I've made more notes of just writing down your quotes during this interview than any other interview. So I think a lot of people are going to really enjoy the show. So thank you so much for the time, Scott. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to Outliers. To explore other episodes and sign up for our free weekly newsletter, visit outliers.fm. 